Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale. I'm Naf Kotitamrat. And I'm Chris Newens. Today we have uh, We'll Always Have Paris first. We have our very first guest star, Sarah Siegel. So welcome, Sarah. We're so excited to have you here. Woo-hoo! Hi. <laughs> very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So a little bit about Sarah. Originally from Chicago, Sarah Siegel's a writer, dramaturg, director, and academic working across theater, film, and fiction. She teaches at a few different universities and is the author of Writing in Collaborative Theater Making. She's currently a visiting research fellow at the Central School of Speech and Drama and recently directed her first short film, No Caller. Her debut novel, The Socialite Spy in Pursuit of a King, is out today, October 19th, from Loom Books. We're going to be talking a lot more about this in just a minute. She lives in London with a lot of houseplants and far too many books, something which I think brings us all together. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sarah, welcome. Um, Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and your book. Um, okay, so I moved here uh, to London in 2005. Um, I met Rachel at some point in the years I've been in London. I can't even remember now because she used to live with my our both our very dear friend um, Catherine Fry, and we yeah we met at some point. Um, I've been here for a long time. I maybe part of the reason why I'm drawn to your podcast is the sort of like um, I hate the word expat because I think it comes with like certain, you know, like kind of class or, um, you know, national privilege connotations. But for lack of a better word, the like general um, inquisitive, curious expat quality to it. Yeah, I came to study playwriting and I was desperate for a visa, um, and Rachel might know <laughs> this particular story. I did a PhD um, in a fit of madness. Yeah, and I've been making theater for a long time. And then, uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the real story behind my book is that I was at a friend's wedding a few years ago and ran into some friends of mine who had started a literary agency And I had had a few drinks and I told them, apropos of nothing, that I was writing a novel. This is really (laughs) I wasn't writing a novel. (laughs) (laughs) I had never written, I had never even attempted to write a novel, but I'm so used to like the hustle, like the artist hustle, the theater hustle. I was like, oh, here's an opportunity. Make something up. (laughs) (laughs) So were you actually Um, writing a novel at the time? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I don't think it had occurred to me until that moment. <laughs> like, I had a play that the novel is based on, and I had been working on that play for a while, and it had it had been written and it had toured and gone to Edinburgh, and done all sorts of stuff, and I was just like, yeah, I'm adapting this play that was in Edinburgh a few years ago into a novel, and they went, oh, that sounds great. Why don't you send us some pages? <laughs> <laughs> send the pages around. I mean, like, how right. fast did you, did you get back home that evening? You're like, hey, you know, uh, my bus is here. Like, I should really go back and. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, they didn't say like, oh, can you send us something tomorrow? They were just like, oh, whenever you're ready, you know, you can send us something. And I was like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> Which wasn't untrue. That's true. <laughs> not a lie not a lie (laughs) it was not untrue but I did um I remember at the time I was cat sitting for I guess I think it was the friend who had gotten married because I think then he and his wife went on a honeymoon I was cat sitting for him and I remember just sitting in their living room being like okay well gotta write something So that, yeah, that was how I started writing novels and the play was in first person. And so I started writing it as an extended monologue, kind of like that's how I made myself comfortable with the idea of like fiction, Um, because it seems it, I guess in some ways it's very different. In some ways it's not that different from playwriting. Um, But I felt, you know, I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I just wrote it as this monologue and because the play is rooted in history, I had so much material to go on and I realized how much I had cut out of the play because it had to be an hour for Edinburgh um, and how much more there was to tell. And that every time I had watched the play, I had more and more and more ideas about what the character could do and what what are the other things that could happen or people would come to see it and say like, oh, can you, what, where did you get the idea for her husband or for this person or that? And then I would start thinking more about um, what could happen next um, and more deeply about who the character really was, because sometimes it's a little bit of a superficial take on someone when you only have a certain amount of time to get everything across. And then I wrote probably half of it before the pandemic and because I sort of thought, well, maybe I maybe I could do this. This is sort of interesting. And I went on a really lovely writing retreat in 2019 that a friend of mine um, used to run in Scotland. And it was we were in the Orkney Islands, and it was amazing. And I was in this like 16th century um, what's called a manse where the you know priests used to live, and there were there were, like no people and no trees. It was really barren, and I got loads of writing done. Then the pandemic happened, and then um, I was terrified that theater would never happen again. Space, and um, <laughs> then suddenly I was isolated. Isolation <laughs> <Yeah>. turned sour. <laughs> yeah, then I was totally pretty isolated. I was living with my mom and just watching theater completely fall apart and was like, well, I better do something else that doesn't rely on like live performance because this feels terrible and terrifying. <laughs> For those who have not yet had the privilege of reading this incredible book, uh, just a brief introduction before we talk a little bit more about process. So it's London, 1936. Socialite and journalist Lady Pamela Moore pens the popular Agent of Influence column, writing wittily about fashion and high society. For her latest piece, she interviews Wallace Simpson, the newly crowned king's American mistress. That's when she's approached by MI5. Her mission, spy on the royal couple and report on their connections with Nazi Germany. As she navigates the treacherous world of international espionage, Pamela uses her skills of observation and intuition to infiltrate Wallace's inner circle. But Europe is unstable and international spies lurk on every corner. Does Pamela have what it takes to survive the currents of espionage or is she in over her head? So that's a little taste of the larger love story. But before we get into that, we definitely have some questions for Sarah about 
the writing process and uh, in particular, kind of your, your multidisciplinary background? Uh, yeah, I wanted to know what the what's the difference or the biggest difference that you found between um, writing plays and writing a novel, basically. Um, the biggest difference was things like, um, remember when my, my agent was the first person to read it, like really no, not a soul. There were people on my writing retreat who had, you know, heard bits of it. I read bits of it to them or they'd read bits. Um, but when she started reading it, she would say things like, well, what happens here? Like, how does she feel? What happens now? And I, and I realized that I'm trained as a playwright, I'm trained to leave a lot of holes because you need to have breathing room. You need room for interpretation. You need room for the actor's interpretation, designer, director, maybe movement director, choreographer, all of, you can't, you really shouldn't overwrite. I mean, they're different styles and it's a one woman show. So you kind of can get away with more and like explanation, things like that. But exposition is like a huge no, no. And so I was writing in a more spare kind of way and thinking in my mind that the, you know, the readers could see, like the readers could see the characters faces, you know, which is obviously not how that works. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to really fill in, I had to go against my instincts and w do what I thought was overwriting, mm. which is sometimes it's overwriting in fiction, but like usually not for me. Um, and even when I was working with the editors, my publisher works with, they would be like, well, what, what's actually happening here? What's going on? Can you draw this out? I feel like I've missed something. So I, I feel like maybe my tendency is to underwrite a little bit because I'm waiting for someone else to like, I don't know, make something happen in my book. Amazing. Yeah. But then, you know, if, uh, you know, if you ever need to adapt this to a film, you know, you'll know exactly where you need to pair back. <laughs> well, funny you should mention that. I, uh, if anyone's listening and works in TV or film, I do have um, a TV pilot's uh, version of this. I have the first episode of a pilot for the imaginary uh, Socialite Spy TV oh. show. This is the show that we need. Absolutely. Can you imagine the costumes on Wallace yeah. alone? But yeah. uh, we will be getting yes. into that. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit, uh, just pivoting here, what's your relationship with Paris? I once said to somebody that I feel like Paris is the cool girl in high school that I sort of look up to. And even though she can be like a bitch, I'm still like, oh, the cool girl. <laughs> Maybe it comes from having studied French in grade school and high school and having been maybe indoctrinated with like French cultural propaganda. <laughs> And having this, there was always this sort of messaging of like, we we Americans are complete barbarians, but the French, oh, the French are you know, these incredibly refined, <laughs> delicate creatures. <laughs> <laughs> they need scarves constantly, or they just die. Their heads, <laughs> their heads just fall off like. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true because uh, we live here. So uh, we, we are the cool girls' I've, minions. I've, I've seen yeah. it happen. I've seen just you, you walk on the street and a French person walks out of their apartment building, head falls off because they're not it. wearing a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> Softies. Right, right. And 
And then building off of that, what's your relationship to stories about Paris? Have you ever written about Paris before in your mini projects? Um, or do you who's um, written accounts of Paris that you kind of, you, you're, you gravitate toward? I don't think I have until now because book two, little pitch for book two, who knows when that com- that's coming out, that takes place between 1938 and 1940 and takes place mostly in France, mostly in Paris, actually. Little of London, largely in Paris. As you've said before, I'm, I'm not sure that there was a book two until that's that right. question was <laughs> <laughs> I'm really bad at this. I'm used to plays. There's no like play one and play two. There's just like the play and then the next play. But this is like, oh yeah, I'll book what book oh yeah, book two. It's related to book one. Right. <laughs> um yes, it's a it's a series. Um book two will happen at some point. Don't know when. Um mm-hmm. possibly if all that goes well, a book three in the more distant future with the what? same character. We need it. And of course, the TV show is going to need it for series three. Um, I mean, exactly. This is the only reason why I'm doing it. (laughs) 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 Kidding. It's in the back of my mind, but that's not. That's That's important. (laughs) Authenticity. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, But but I think my brain thinks about it like a TV show, weirdly. Like it is like, oh, season one, season two, season three. And maybe that's coming from a performance background. I don't know. Yeah. I was going to say that I feel like coming from performance into novel writing, you you kind of have some two things over, I think, a lot of people who start as novelists, including me, which is that you already have a visual sense of how things should move and be orchestrated. And I've always found, I know we've talked about this before, that one of the hardest things about writing is just getting my characters to fucking move around, mm-hmm. right? Like they have these long conversations and then they're stuck in the living room for decades, right? And the other <laughs> thing is that dialogue, right? Like another thing that I think for a novelist can be so tough. And I I'm, I think that those two assets must be incredible, right? Like in a, in a novelist toolkit. And you've been doing that for years. I definitely have characters who just get stuck in a conversation and don't move. And I always thought that was from, because I come from playwriting and there's like a dialogic, you know, I know what's going to happen in the dialogue, but then I forget to describe what they're doing or have them do something because I get so focused Mm -hmm. on what they're saying to each other. So sometimes that works for me. Sometimes that works against me. Mm -hmm. I've had the exact opposite problem, which is that when I like, whenever I've sat down and been like, you know what, I've I've studied film. I don't know if you guys know that, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the <fucking back> door. <laughs> what? it costs two hundred thousand dollars. But <laughs> the whole point being is that I would be like, I could write a screenplay. I know what screenplays look like, and I'd sit down and be like, okay, you know, the the intro. You know, whenever a character would be introduced, and be like, Rachel enters. She is, you know. 25 years old, blah, blah, blah. And like three pages later, I'm still in those brackets. Right. Just being like, <laughs> and then when she was 18, this happened to her. And I'm like, mm, this isn't my form. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, no space for anybody else. But also because talking about the story you're about to write is far more entertaining than actually writing that story is my personal experience. Because <laughs> <laughs> it can be anything. You're like, here are the things that could happen. And then someone says something and then you, you know, you go, yes, and, right? You improvise, yeah, yeah. 
Like, yeah, I believe it is triplets. You're absolutely correct. In Belleville. And I believe that's how that movie started, actually. Right. It's at the same wedding that you were at, Sarah. So it's really yeah. for, you know, creativity. So with all of that in mind, uh, Sarah is here today as well to tell us about a very particular love story. And that is the love story between King Edward VIII, um, which I had to verify with our fellow Brit here. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> well, it's, 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 I was like seven. Encyclopedic knowledge of the kings of England. <laughs> and we all have it. I, I don't know if you've noticed living in London. But, uh... <laughs> Could a British person's DNA seen under a microscope? <laughs> it's just decades and names. <laughs> we all have these rulers, actually. Like, I mean, like not the kings and queens of England. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you know, rulers for measuring stuff. This used to be a sort of standard issue, which had all of the um, monarchs of England. Um, Wait, just I've on- seen those. I've yeah. seen those. This was like a bit. I was like, huh, uh, yeah, we were we were raced for yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think you're thinking rulers have like ramrod straight posture no, no but, they, but, they, yeah. they were wooden rulers that you'd get in school and i'd say about kind of like 30 percent of uh my primary school uh friends would have had these rulers with the with the kings and queens the uh, ruler ruler i mean i think you're probably subtly playing off that <laughs> or not um, so subtly. if i had come up with that i'd be so proud <laughs> i would never stop talking about it i mean me i had a ruler with the dinosaurs which sort of moved <laughs> when you moved the ruler which i thought was a lot cooler Ultimately, less educational. You are Ross from Friends. It has been established. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, Sarah, tell us about this uh, slightly odd couple. Ooh, I mean, when you first invited me on the show to talk about it, I mean, obviously, I love your podcast. I think it's great. I've been, I've, I just listened to the Eloise and Abelard um, episode. Uh, and yeah, so I understand what, obviously I understand what the premise of the podcast is, but like when you said the love story of Wallace and Edward, like my blood curdled, like I felt, felt ill (laughs) because I now I've been researching these people for like a while, like years now, because they're at the heart of this book that was first to play. And I have only found out more and more and more awful things about what bad people they were. And so, and also how they treated each other and what the nature of the relationship was. So when I think of it as a love story, I'm like, (laughs) that's our favorite kind. (laughs) I've noticed. (laughs) I don't, I mean, he gave up the the crown for her though. Surely there was some romance involved. Yeah. That's complicated. Like he, he did, but also he didn't, He's a spoiled, he was a spoiled little man baby <laughs> who didn't want the crown when he had it and then wanted it when he didn't have it. Um, I think, that, I mean, it may come as some surprise to you guys that, you know, there's a lot of uh, bad parenting that goes on in the royal family. What? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to burn Princess Margaret's baby book. <laughs> So they're, it's you know, real. historically dysfunctional. Like his father, George V, was like known as very militaristic, cold, almost tyrannical man. I don't think anyone had a fun childhood under him. Um, they, There were stories that Ed, Edward VIII, when he was still the Prince of Wales, would do things like 
like do really dangerous things, um, drive fast cars, ride in steeplechases in the hopes that he would like get killed and wouldn't have to become king because he didn't want to be like his father. He, he, a lot of people were close to them thought that it was too much pressure for him. And he just kind of wanted to like be a normal rich person and just like <laughs> go and like, you know, drink like, and party and have affairs and buy expensive suits, whatever. He just wanted to be like a playboy. And I think the thought of being King was actually like really terrifying. And when he did come to the throne, because his father had been in power for a long time and was the sort of uh, almost like an archetype of a king, you know, like bushy bearded, um, like lived through the war, you know, like very um, Spartan kind of in that Queen Victoria tradition. What what years are we talking about here? Just to be so, his he came to the throne. His father died. It was either I think it was the end of January nineteen thirty six. So kind of beginning of nineteen thirty six. Um, Edward the Eighth comes to the throne, and then the abdication. It's really less than a year. The abdication when he steps down was December tenth, nineteen thirty six. I think. So he was actually never he was never crowned. Um, okay. Sort of employment. I try to get out before the end of the year. <laughs> not, not a good fit. Not a good look for me. Not lose my reputation. But then his Playboy years, then were they were sort of like the sort of after the like between the wars era, like kind of after the first yeah. world war. But... Yeah, it was the classic. You know, like everybody, everybody, everybody was you know white and had money in England at the sort of you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, he, he was in the war. He was very young in the, so he was born in, he and Wallace, I think were the same age. I think they were both born in 1896. So he would have been, um, 40, which was, this is crazy. I'm like, oh, he would have been my age before I turned 40. (laughs) (laughs) If you look at him from this time, he looks a thousand. But also like a baby. It looks like a Benjamin. (laughs) I mean, a lot of somebody, somebody had something, they said something really interesting about him that he had like, he was, he had a sort of weird boyish face, but also was kind of, but in a, in a way like a evil fairy or something. Or maybe I'm conflating two different descriptions, but that's sort of how I think people saw him was sort of like so much better. Like that's so specific and terrible and gnarled. (laughs) I don't know. My one of my college roommates once said about this guy that I like, what are you talking about? He has an old man head on a little boy body. And I was like, I can no longer actually see this person as sexual. Thank you very much. (laughs) That's so helpful. I feel like with, with some some people, maybe that's a helpful thing to hear. <laughs> if only Wallace Simpson had somebody to tell her. Yeah, but no, well, not to be confused though. Edward VIII doesn't look like that. He looks like an evil fairy. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. We want to keep our terminology accurate. Right. right. Excuse me. Yeah. A lot of high school students use it as a resource, as we remember, <laughs> for their history and literature classes. So he's a playboy. Does he have any interest in settling down at all? No, zero. I mean, that's the other thing is that he, I think it was, 
you know, it was like issues with his father, issues with authority, fear of commitment, fear of taking power, fear of anybody relying on him, um, all that pressure. I just think it made him run a hundred miles from um, any kind of commitment, marriage, children, nothing. He never had children. Um, he had never been married until Wallace, um, but he did really like uh, married American women. He had multiple American divorced and married uh, lovers, but he also just generally, um, British women too, he tended to have affairs with women who are already married. And I think partly it's kind of practical when birth control is either non-existent or not reliable. So if, you know, someone gets pregnant, you can kind of just be like, oh, maybe it wasn't me. Um, But I also think this was his, to use like a common, more common pop psychology term, one could say he was an avoidant. Like many of the men I myself have dated, he was an avoidant. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, like, yeah, you're hitting hard. That's what, that's what <laughs> um, So Wallace obviously fell right into the kind of sweet spot of his attraction, but like how, what is there cute, right? Like if we're doing the romantic comedy of this, not directed by Madonna. I didn't even see that movie. I didn't even watch the Madonna movie because I just, even before I knew that much about them, I was like, mm, I don't think. <laughs> you question Madonna's directorial style? What? I mean, I'm not going to question anything else about Madonna. Everything else is fantastic, but maybe as a director, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I hope Madonna isn't listening to that. <laughs> I, I hope she is. I really but, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we can. I would be amazed if Madonna was so delighted. <laughs> Shout out to Madonna. This is for Madonna. We're adding Madonna on social media. <laughs> Please find us, get in our mentions, yell at us, but do it publicly. Maybe drop us a DM. Because over the summer, we had one day where all of a sudden we had. 10, 20 times the number of listeners that we normally have in a day with no explanation. <laughs> call it the Madonna effect. <laughs> the Madonna effect. I'm like, was was that her? Madonna? Is <laughs> that you? But I think, yeah, I think, I mean, to go back to Nat's question, I mean, what is the meet cute and what's the appeal for Wallace? Accounts differ. It's, it's, no one will ever really know. Um, (laughs) The meat cute was that she sort of, um, I'm not going to say stole him away because I think that puts the onus on her too much. And that's like a negative stereotype about women anyway, but she met him through his previous girlfriend, uh, Thelma Furness, who was also American. I think they met at you know, like a a country house party or a dinner party in London or something. Wallace had been married twice. Um, Her second husband was um, American and British. He was a businessman. And I think that they were both very ambitious. She more so than her husband. And they were kind of trying to make inroads in London society. This is sort of late twenties, early thirties. I think she met him in uh, like oh, I can't. I can't. They got together, I think, in thirty-four, but they met a little earlier than that, maybe thirty-two or thirty-three. And so she met him through this like other American woman, um, and then he left her for Wallace. But Wallace was still married, and so you know who who knows? It's just a 
you know, eyes meeting over candlelight at a dinner party or whatever. And what was Wallace like as a as a person? Like, I mean, so we know the playboy young Edward, the not yet eighth, but yeah, Wallace. Is I've only heard like, wild rumors from like nineties Vanity Fair stuff. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's why it's hard to know. It's yeah. hard to know what's really true, but what we do know about her is that I mean, she was an awful woman, but her first husband was abusive and would do things like tie her to the bed and beat her up or lock her in a bathroom and leave her for hours. And he was a terrible drinker. She was a like a Baltimore society girl whose family had fallen on hard times. And I think that she just had to get out and marry somebody. And she met this guy and uh, he was in the air force during world war one. And they did a lot of traveling because of the military. They were in the far East, but she was in all these war zones and dangerous places. And she was in China when there was upheaval and revolution and war. So she, she had a really rough start to life. Um, and I think that if nothing else, she was a real survivor, which then made her like, incredibly narcissistic and self-absorbed and awful but she had a really really rough time of it in her first marriage they eventually got divorced she met Ernest um Simpson somehow I can't remember how maybe somewhere in New York like some again some society thing she was very she could be it sounded like from all the accounts of her she could be incredibly horrible and nasty or she could be really charming um and I think she met this guy. They eventually moved to London because of his business. And she was used to, she hadn't had a long-term home anywhere for years. And so she was used to just upping sticks and moving somewhere else. Um, and I mean, I guess she saw the attentions of the King and was like, Oh, great. You know, why not? And there were stories about her having other affairs with other men at the same time. I mean, like, for years when she was with Edward. So, I mean, I don't think she was faithful to her husband anyway, what, for whatever that's worth. Um, but it's a, there are all sorts of speculations on what they meant to each other and why they were attracted to each other. And, you know, he was the prince, then the Prince of Wales and money and power and attention. And I think he was really taken with her and really adored her. And that was probably very exciting and he would buy her things and you know why not and and it was also a way into society and and for like a hard scrabble kind of like girl whose mother ran a boarding house in Baltimore that was you know that was very exciting what I think happened is that he became like totally obsessed with her um, and she was eventually sort of like, hmm, what have I got myself into? I think this is more than I really bargained for. And that's sort of the feeling I get. So Wallace Simpson never actually wanted to be queen. I think it shifted and changed depending on like what was happening in history and their moods and how they bounce things off each other. It's really hard to know what she wanted. I kind of think he got really obsessed with her. She was sort of in over her head. I don't think anybody really wants to be the woman who brings down the King of England. I personally wouldn't have a problem with bringing down the entire monarchy, <laughs> but I don't want to marry any of them to do it. So, you know, I don't know. 
So then what is it that, uh, well, I think Chris, uh, Chris had a good question about this. I don't know if it's a good question, but just, um, just so what happened when they met then? I mean, what, what drew them to one another and, um, and sort of after they met, sorry, like what, how did the relationship progress after that? Like, um, I feel like she was a, you know, a strong personality and she kind of was her own person and was sort of, maybe he found her refreshingly American or something. I was just reading the other day that the thirties for Britain was a period when American culture was sort of cool. Like, um, you know, like American slang and American films and Hollywood and like jazz music. And it, I guess this holdover from the twenties or something. And um, maybe he just thought she was kind of cool because she would like, make sandwiches uh, you know it's like they had this whole they this was commented on like oh she would make like get the top the kitchen how to make sandwiches for their party guests which i read that and i was like what <laughs> you know can't you just, but can't you see someone who's rich and royal seeing someone do a com like big air quotes like a commoner thing and being like oh it's so darling with your hands mm -hmm. both slices Crazy. I feel like that's a romance trope. Yeah, of like, oh, you're doing the the, the commoner thing. Exactly. <laughs> Salt of the earth. And also, there's some thought that um, she was like there was some kind of BDSM thing going on, so that she was kind of yeah, that she was like the dom and he was the sub. Hey. Oh, I so that to me is like that tracks. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> so I'm not going to ick anyone's yuck anyone's yum, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, but I really is that what sub is short for? Sorry, when you order a sandwich. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is an exclusive, guys. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Sarah. These two won't stop talking about sandwiches. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting, though, and I do wonder too if because I, like there was the thing with the Mosley's kid who was really into. Um, Nazi, like uh, BDSM, and um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if it had, if it was something to do with nannies. That's all. That's that's <laughs> right. all. I just want to put it out there. Today on Dateline, is it the nannies? Is it, <laughs> is it the nannies? We, we're going to need to cut all of this. Oh, um, nannies, military culture, boarding school, uh, pun corporal punishment, um, all kinds of. There's all kinds of stuff at play then and now with upper class men. I will tell you that. <laughs> but I am interested to why I mean he obviously had this like playboy lifestyle um and sort of he can almost sort of any woman who he meets is probably going to be in some way interested in him because he's the future king of England um, um why why did it stop then with Wallace Simpson I mean no one will really know but I think she was probably the one woman he met who was like mean enough for him basically <laughs> this this like the BDSM kind of probably also he was sort of childish and I think he needed boundaries like children do and I think she gave him those boundaries and I think that made him feel safe if I'm being generous about it. And, you know, there was, there was a sexual something going on. There was a, it's, it's in my book, but someone had a story about like a footman walking in on him painting her toenails, you know, like 
there, you know, there was all kinds of stuff going on sexually, probably. Um, but I think she was like a little bit mean to him. And I think maybe for him, that was sort of like boundaries. And also he probably liked being told what to do because it was a relief because then he didn't have to in this year when he was king and his father had died and everyone was looking to him to be a certain kind of person. He had this woman telling him how to behave and what to do, which was probably comforting or something like that's my own take on it basically so and is there any impetus that like causes him to decide to marry her and give up the throne i don't that's another thing that i don't know if i'll really know i think for him it was like this is showing demonstrating to you that this is different this is not like my other affairs maybe there was some pushing on her end of like, well, how serious are you? Because I think things probably got dicey for her at one point where people are like, well, who are you and what are you doing here? And, you know, are you going to leave your husband? And I guess her husband was also, he was having an affair with another woman. And I, I mean, Wallace probably looked at her future and went, well, if my husband divorces me, then where am I left? what if this guy isn't going to marry me? And there was a period when she was cut adrift and she was divorced and she was living in France and she wasn't married to the king yet, you know, or the, the Duke of Windsor at that point. And so it's hard to pinpoint exactly where that happened, but he probably thought this is a demonstration of my love, but he also kind of, I don't know, part of him probably thought, I can do what I want. I can marry her and stay on the throne. And part of him probably thought if I marry her, it's an out and I don't have to stay. So I don't and know. Actually, for Wallace, this might, I hope this is not too off topic, but I'm wondering for Wallace, do you think that also it strikes me when you say, you know, she's looking at her prospects and going, what, this isn't great. Is there maybe a part of her also that's thinking about her story, right? Like if I'm going to go out, what if I go out with, this kind of clue, you know, like, you know, a king is abdicated for me, right? Is She seems like someone who is kind of seeing the lay of the land and going like, I could be a legend, right? I, I'm not going to be happy. That's clearly the case, but. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, she had such a, there are a lot, you know, the big, the sort of, I don't know, first 25, 30 years of her life were kind of crap. And I think, there was certainly a part of her that was incredibly narcissistic and probably loved this idea of, of being this woman, but also there is security and being known, I suppose, rather than just being anonymous and being disposed of. Um, but then some people say that she kind of wanted the affair to end at a certain point because it was getting kind of scary. The, the thing about the relationship is that there's so many different perspectives on it. Um, it's I've in writing about it, I've had to really kind of like read a lot of different sources and a lot of different firsthand accounts and then try to find a way through that. That makes sense to me. Just to get an idea of the timeline then, they meet one another, then he gets crowned as king and then- He was never crowned. So he just oh, so came to the throne because his father died. But he they've been having an affair for a little while. He comes to the throne in 30, beginning of 36. Um, and then he abdicates in the end of 1936. And then they get married in uh, in France. This is they move to France and sort of 19. They, they have a period where her divorce has to be finalized. Um, 
and they both go abroad. I think she's in France staying with friends and he's in Austria staying with the Rothschilds, which is wild to me because then he collaborated with the Nazis, you know, sort of nuts. Um, But then they ended up in France because they really couldn't go back to Britain. So that was 1937. They got married in May of 37. And then they were stuck with each other for the rest of their lives. There there must be some degree to which like his decision to marry her and turn his back on the playboy lifestyle could have been influenced by the fact that he his father had died and he was very soon to be crowned king and that this happens to be the time when he decides that he's gonna get married like to make well, a decision the timing was i mean this is read my book and you'll find out how this plays out i mean some of it's fictionalized but a lot of it is based on um, what was going on in the government and in MI5 because MI5 saw what was happening and they were very concerned because all of a sudden he is more serious about, he is clearly more serious about Wallace than previous mistresses and he's spending a ton of money on her. And they're like, oh, there's a lot of Cartier floating around <laughs> and they... That you know, it's basically he was buying her a huge amount of stuff and couture and credit and all this crazy stuff. And then they they tap his phone lines and they have people following him and her. And and there's all this other stuff around her being a liability because she was supposedly having other affairs with other men at the time, one of whom was reputed to be um uh the Ron Ribbentrop, who was the German ambassador, um, sort of partly through 1936. And they they were hanging out with the German, you know, he was a he already had fascist sympathies. They didn't really know her politics. They were hanging out with the Ger- German ambassador. <laughs> so there was a security concern, basically. Yeah. And they were like, you've got a you can't and 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 if she was married and then there was talk of her divorce and the the final straw was really the Church of England being like, what? <laughs> What's happening here? You're the head of the church. So it just, it got so messy. And there were factions within the government. Like Churchill was his friend and wanted to keep him um, on the throne. But a lot of people in the government were like, this is a mess. This is really dangerous. We don't know what to do. I mean, the the abdication was this like really shameful moment in history people were kind of shocked that it happened mm-hmm. um but it was sort of because they they weren't going to allow wallace to become queen yeah. and just couldn't because of the fact that she's a commoner and she's american she's divorced he couldn't be the head of the church of england and the queen of england and and the king of england and stand the throne with this woman was that the right choice? Like, you know, I mean, like if he hadn't abdicated, I mean, in the kind of what if history, is there any possibility that that could have happened? Like they could, she could have become queen and. Mm, I don't know. I mean, there is something called a, I'm going to butcher this word. It's a weird word. A morganatic marriage where you're no, like the queen consort and you're not, you're not like, you don't have a t- title um but you are still married to the the monarch but that wasn't that was floated around i think she, if she had been a different kind of commoner if she had been british if she hadn't been married if she hadn't been divorced you know there might have been other 
if she hadn't been having affairs with other men or rumored to be having affairs with other men, if she hadn't been rumored to have been having an affair with Von Ribbentrop. I just think it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, in terms of sort of like how much or how little the monarchy matters and how different like history could have gone if, you know, he hadn't abdicated and you've got effectively, I mean, I don't know if he would have gone quite so hard into the Nazi sympathizing, but like if you have somebody who definitely has those proclivities on the the, the throne, kind of coming into the Second World War and kind of like the part, the way in which history kind of could have been different because of that. Um, and I think that even if you're a, an anti-monarchist, it makes you sort of recognize that there is an importance in the kind of like the actions of kings, even though. They're essentially very silly. And in this case, especially considering the fact, because you were saying, Sarah, that he and Churchill were friends. So it's very interesting. Oh, yeah. What if yeah. they were the two leaders in, you know, in a certain way of of England at that time, right? Like that, oh my God, yeah, that's true. Like him not abdicating changes so many of the ripples mm. of what has come out of World War II in England. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, all the stuff that happened after the abdication leads me to believe that he would have said a lot of really embarrassing things about the Nazis and not been a real great, like, you know, monarch to have on the throne at the time. I mean, I guess there was a chance he could have cleaned up his act and then acted like a king, but he didn't when he had the chance in 1936, you know? Um, So there's also, there was a concern among people, even after he abdicated, that he would... um, he would be instrumental in kind of activating a a sort of fifth column of fascists in Britain, and they would make him their kind of lightning rod. Like um, Mosley wanted to, Oswald Mosley had ideas around bringing him back to the throne and then campaigning and helping, having him campaign for Mosley to be, you know, to be leader of what, or or to, to, to elect the British Union of Fascists, you know, so it's, I guess there are a lot of different directions, but he ultimately genuinely really thought the Germans had gotten a raw deal and anything they did was sort of justified. I mean, this is, I'm going to jump to the end a little bit, but like as a Jew, I'm going to cut to the difficult part, which is there is an account of a woman who said after the war, her mother, after this is after the war, it's like 1945, 46. Um, her mother was at a dinner with him and he the the camps, the concentration camps and Jews came up and he said, oh, it's really a shame. She said, what's a shame? He said that they didn't finish the job and kill all of them. Oh my God. So as a Jew, I'm like, fuck that guy. Like maybe he should have been tried for treason and executed. (laughs) Yeah, because the beginning of that story, I think it's like, like uh, not, I, I don't even want to call this normal bad, but let's just say predictable bad, where it's like, oh, like, you know, like, like the royal family, like, oh, that's such a shame that that happened. And it's like, you're talking about concentration camps. And then the second part of the sentence comes mm-hmm. and just, yeah, this is, so, this is not uh, the love of my life here. I'm thinking that amazing to think that if, I mean, if the Nazis had won, he would have been reinstated as king, presumably in England. Like yeah. that would have been a thing that, would have happened like yeah probably well i think i I think moving just slightly forward in time a bit um 
what's their dynamic like? I mean, it's hard to to summarize a couple's dynamic over, what is it, 30, 40 years that then they spend together. But they're kind of trapped in France, as I understand it. Yeah, so they moved to France in kind of 37, and they got married in May of 37, and then they um, had, I don't know if they ever bought these places. I think they were renting, which is kind of interesting. They had a... Um, uh, a, a large house, although they didn't think it was very big. We couldn't entertain there. It was a terrible pity. Um, they had this house in the boule uh, Boulevard Suchet, which I think is maybe like Newly or, you know, that kind of area, Posh Paris. And they also had La Croix, which is like in the Côte d'Azur on the Riviera, which is, you know, enormous, still, is still there, enormous mansion. And they lived these this kind of sad life basically like there was the period where he was governor of the bahamas which um the british government was like you need to get out of europe because you're basically a traitor i'll get to that in a minute um but he but they were in france for the rest of their lives because they couldn't really be allowed back into britain and they also they had a terrible relationship at that point with the royal family the the king and queen wouldn't receive wallace they wouldn't give her the HRH, she, no one would curtsy to her. Like even when he stepped down and they had the title of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, she, she, he was understood to be someone that you would um, refer to as his Royal Highness and you would bow and curtsy to. She was not, she didn't have that privilege and they really hung on to that bone for the rest of their lives because he was, he found it, disrespectful to her and to him and um but she uh, there's another a lot of this is anecdote the 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 story and maybe it's apocryphal but the morning after they got married um and she woke up next to him he was like what he had been watching her sleeping and he said um so what do we do today and she realized oh my God, I'm going to have to take care of this man and tell him what to do every single day for the rest of my life. That's chilling. Yeah, that is. <laughs> and also I'm realizing how many millions of women have had that realization <laughs> the day after they got married and they were not even married to someone who used to be a royal. Really let that sit. Okay. Yeah. This season we're getting real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, what I mean, what's the what's the end of the story then? I mean, so you know, after she's they've woken up in the morning after their wedding day. What are we going to do today? Where did that take them? And kind of like towards their dotage, like how did how did it end effectively? Like so, the majority of their life, apart from the the like, basically, there's a short, and this is in book two, but there is a short period between kind of like. 3940 at the beginning of the war before he goes to the Bahamas. Um, uh, apart from that, they were mostly just, he played golf every day and they had dinner parties and she would get her nails and her hair done and he would get his several, he would send for his several row suits and she would buy couture and they just spent a lot of money and complained about the Royal family and had little dogs. Like that's, but, yeah, it's no. like the Royals today. I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> Mm. Um, and they kind of lived in the shadows. They kind of skulked around. No, I was just asking, were they kind of a novelty in Paris? Like, did they kind of get social standing because of the uniqueness of... Um, 
story. I think initially people were like, whoa, no, like they really looked down on her and high society, anyone who had a link, because there were plenty of links between um, sort of the French upper classes and the British upper classes. It was known that if you were to socialize and fraternize with the Windsors, the royal family would excommunicate you. So people were like, not coming near these guys. And I think they were kind of um, off limits for a while and seen as like social black sheep in a way, especially her, because women are, you know, always blamed, blah, blah, blah. Um, but their year, the kind of like year and a bit or whatever of the war, the beginning of the war, I mean, the the sort of the story is that he was passing information to the Germans. And he is one of the reasons, he is potentially one of the reasons why the Germans invaded France, how and when they did, because he was inspecting French defense lines with the British and the French army as a ceremonial role. And he was writing letters to Hess and Goering and Hitler. Mm. So there you go. It's Prince Andrew in perspective. Look at me. <laughs> yeah, there's your third choice for me. But um, no, it's it's not. Um, so are we doing a, a Mary Fuck Kill Royal Edition? <laughs> <laughs> They're all Royal Editions. There isn't every single one. No. With that said. And let's uh, talk about who in this story we married. I, I do want, we need to find out how they died. Okay. Like, the, the, Chris the, really the, wants them to die. I and I agree. The, I feel that has to be the, you know, just to, you know, how many. So Keep it in. Keep it in. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the year they died. He died first. Um, they lived a, a while, you know, I think he died in the, late 60s early 70s and she died at some point in the 70s and they both died in France and I think they died very I think he kind of got what he wanted in a way because he got her I think she from the sounds of it sounds like she died a very bitter unhappy lonely also lonely woman I think she's quite isolated at the end um I think they were kind of shadows of their former selves by the end because they were kind of living in a you know, a sort of bitter uh, existence of like, why did the royal family do this to us? And their former selves weren't that great. <laughs> yeah. So shadows of that. Eek. Yeah. yeah. I, I believe they, I, I remember hearing something about like them having expressed wishes to be buried in England, but the family forbidding that. Is that? Yeah. I can't, I can't remember where they're buried, but the family just didn't ever want them in the country ever again because there was a fear that they would galvanize, like they would split the country and there would people who would then support them and then they would become really popular and then the royal family would lose support and it would split the country and it would be bad for morale and especially in the war years and the post-war years. So they just never wanted them around ever again. Yes, it is understandable. <laughs> it is, it is. In this case, for sure. But it, I was just thinking, it's funny that, or interesting that a running theme of the royal family is, oh no, this person might be more popular than the rest of us, they'll overshadow us, get rid of them. Obviously, in this case, warranted. I want to make that very clear. <laughs> but this is definitely, you know, a, a technique of the royal family. Yeah. Yep. And I think with that in mind, everybody needs to go out and buy Sarah's book. This instant, it's available today. Be the first one in your group to start the trend because everybody's going to be on it. There's going to be a TV show. There's going to be a TV show. And uh, yeah, you need to learn all the spoilers. 
Now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. Sarah, do you have ideas about who we're going to marry, fuck, and kill in this story? You know, I this is like sometimes my favorite segment of the show because <laughs> you guys come up with such great ideas and it's always so bonkers. So I would love for you to, you know, find the Mary fuck kill in this. We, we did discuss it earlier mm -hmm. and I think we landed on one that we all appreciate, which is obviously Edward VIII, mm -hmm. Prince Harry, also leaving the royal family for the woman he loves, mm -hmm. or the English crown. So, uh, Sarah, I will let I will let you pick first <laughs> amongst these wonderful choices, all of which would make great partners. It's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, the crown is in like the institution of the royal family. The the implication to me, at least, was that if you you know marry it, then you become queen. Uh, yes. you're, you're next you're in you're you're in there you're in you've got all of the mm -hmm. obligations that that involves exactly oh uh, easy then i would marry the crown so i could destroy it from the inside <laughs> that's what all good marriages are based on yeah. <laughs> i mean i would turn buckingham palace into like an art center or something <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry, preaching through the choir here. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening that we're not going to like this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, marry the crown, then destroy it. Uh, I mean, like, you've got to fuck Harry. I'm sure he's fun and bad. He's got to be fun and bad. I, I just, unless he's like, oh, I'm attractive, so I'm going to be lazy and not do any work. I feel like he would probably be. He's not letting that happen. Yeah, Megan has taught him things. Mm. Exactly. And I don't think she would have, they would have lasted very long in a long distance relationship if he hadn't been doing a lot of work to keep right. that going. Mary Kill purposes, we are talking about post-Markle Prince Harry. Yes. Yeah. So, oh yeah, I'm sure Meghan Markle's not going to stay with a man who's bad in bed. Yes, exactly. And so I think, uh, I think what's probably going to be the popular choice of the evening, you're going to kill yeah. Mr. Edward VIII. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to kill Edward VIII um, happily and with relish. <laughs> I'm a hundred percent on the same page. I can't be original about this. I, um, I, you know what? I will swap out. I'll marry Harry. You know, I will teach him good money sense. Mm. Um, I don't have good money sense, but I do feel from his book that I have better money sense than he does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, he doesn't really need good money sense. Yeah. <laughs> so. that, well, he seems to, somebody didn't finish the book. Um, I'll fuck the crown the way that King Edward VIII did, you know, in for a year, brief affair, get right out and kill Edward VIII in the most violent way I can possibly imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to go next? I mean, I think obviously kill Edward VIII. I mean, he seems like Imagine. a terrible, terrible person. Oh, very Edward VIII. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 even I can't be that controversial. Um, I think I'm going to do... Uh, uh, whoa, yeah, let's say what Rachel said. Like, I, I, I'll marry Harry. I reckon him and I could go off. We could uh, have a lot of fun um, setting the world go to rights. Go off and get off, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I... <laughs> I think he'd uh, get bored of me quite quickly, but um, you know, then I'd sell the stories of his affairs to the tabloids and make a mint. Um, and then, yeah, spoken like a true Brit. 
<laughs> and then yeah fuck the crown and maybe you know unsettle it and create a kind of like a huge amount of controversy like who's this mysterious person who's uh, sleeping with the heir to the throne mm. i don't know um and just be momentarily part of that whole kind of like you know waft of things um um, I also will be unoriginal and I'm going to go with your choice, Sarah. And I will say though, so obviously fucking kill the word. Um, I'm going to marry the British crown because I feel like one of the few useful life lessons I've learned from having a very difficult mother is that I am really great at making it seem like I am on your side when I'm a hundred percent not. I think I am actually uniquely suited to kill monarchy from within and they will never know. Until the end, they will be like, but Nuffles, he's such a nice person. And I'll be smiling as the dagger goes in. <laughs> um, and then I will fuck Prince Harry because I think we have a great time. And actually, I think he can help me with my student loans. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely think my generous king, my generous king, king forever, I think that if I was like, Harry, but this letter came with these numbers, I don't understand. I think he'd be the You realize that he'd, you'd appear in the next volume of his autobiography, though. Yep, debt free. <laughs> not not met, if you write it first. <laughs> <laughs> then I met Nafkote. <laughs> She's from Africa. <laughs> my favorite country. <laughs> I saw my mother walking as a rhinoceros on top of her <laughs> Perfect. You said everything that we could possibly have wanted uh, in an episode. Sarah, thank you so much to for bringing your genius and sharing it with us and our listeners. Um, again, next week, our kill is going to be anybody who didn't immediately buy this book. Exactly. So, with that said, that's from all of us here in Paris and London saying thanks for listening and see you next week. And thank you for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure.